Hi, friends. Good morning. You all do the welcome thing so well. I said this at the last service, but I walked in at 8.15 in the side back door, and there was someone there with, like, ready to hug me. And I was like, hi, what's your name? You know, I mean, she's like, Jen. Just, she, Jen, wherever Jen is. Thank you, Jen. Just so welcoming here. Uh, for those of you joining online, I say this at Eaglebrook, too. You could be anywhere you could be anywhere and you're joining us online. I'm so glad uh, that you're here. Keep tuning in. No better place to be. Um, like the video said, my name is Emily Alexander. I'm uh, one of the pastors at Eagle Brook and um, my husband John and I get the privilege to come speak in this space um, for sure every summer in this series. And we're always so grateful to Jeremiah and Cherry, their leadership, their uh, willingness to open up uh, a platform like this for other people to be here. I know Jen, who was here last week, Jen Becker, she's a dear friend, texted me on Friday and said, Emily, go get them. You know, I mean, she's just is such a dear, dear friend. I'm glad you got to hear from her last week. Um, but here, here's the thing. I, I, I started ministry a long time ago. Um, but when I got to Eaglebrook, I was in my late 20s and uh, I just learned a lot. I feel like I grew up there. You know, I, I learned what it, what it meant to be in ministry, to be a pastor. I recently became a leader of people. And I feel like all the years I've been there, 13 years, and the years leading up to these last couple years um, where I got an opportunity to lead people have really prepared me for that. And I just love this season that I'm in, in ministry. And a few years ago, um, I, I was given an opportunity to speak for the first time in our student ministries program. It was in 2021, and I remember being in the back room sort of preparing for um, this message to, to speak, and, and all of a sudden, I was so overcome with nerves. Like, I'm a worship pastor, which means I'm on a team. It's a team sport, if you will, but preaching is not a team sport. You're up here on your own, you know? And, and like, when you mess up in worship, you've got, like, a bunch of people that will help you get back to it. But what do you do when you mess up as a speaker? And, and I was, like, thinking about all these things I hadn't thought of. I was just practicing a message and preparing and, like, and then I was just so overcome with fear of, like, what do I do if I mess up? I had no idea. And just when I thought it, it wasn't actually a team sport, God was like, whoo, here you go. I started to sort of fall to my knees and he's like, yep, do you remember that I am here too, that, that I am actually the power that you draw from, the wisdom that you draw from, you know? See, the longer that I'm a, in ministry, the longer that I'm a Christian, I feel like I draw on my own power and experience, anybody? And so even this morning when you came in here, it's like we forget that we have to go to our knees. Lord, teach us something new about who you are, you know? And I forget that posture sometimes, so that's how I want to start today. I just want to start um, in this posture of humility where, where maybe he has something new to teach us, no matter how long we've been following him. And I think to do that, we have to invite him in. We have to ask for his wisdom. So let's do that together. I'm gonna to pray for all of us. Jesus, thank you for um, this time. Thank you for giving us a place, 
a place to gather and worship you, a place, Lord, where, um, where we can get to know you in new ways, a place where, where we designate our time to just tune in to who you are, to what you're doing in our hearts, Jesus. But I confess, I, I'm not always awake to that. I'm always not very welcome for that. So we welcome you here. Teach us something new about who you are so that we can be more like you, Jesus, when we leave, I pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks for letting me do that. Friends, I have a favorites list, like things that I love in this world that like if I didn't have them, you'd notice a shift in my personality. Um, Number one is pizza. (laughs) You're like, didn't you say you had a husband? Yes. Uh, it's pizza, you know, and I don't discriminate against pizza. Some of you do. Some of you are snobs. I'm not. I will eat it frozen. I will eat it from Little Caesars. I will eat it from Punch. I mean, anywhere. It all tastes good, okay? I love pizza. Sports, I love sports. I can watch just about any sort of competition. There's a few things I don't like to watch. Swimming, <laughs> I'm sorry if you are a swimmer or were a swimmer. I, I don't like watching swimming. I don't know what it is. And then the Olympics roll around and I watch it and I'm like, go, go. I don't like who I am when I watch it, so I just try to avoid it. Golf. <laughs> oh, golf. I mean, it's right in our own backyard this weekend, and I get it. I get the sport. Lowest score wins. I get it. But it's so boring. And why do you have to wear pants? Like, could you imagine being out there on the golf course this weekend in pants? You know, you just feel bad for those rich golfers. All right. Also, how about this one? The hot dog eating contest. Yes. Who watched it? You just said yes. You watched it? All right, listen. As soon as they dip the bread in the water, I'm out. You know, it's just like, no, that is not. And it's a sport because they train for it all year long, you know. It's like, all right, turn the channel. I can't watch it. Okay, my family, they're on my favorites list. I love my family, my kids, my husband, John, my dog, Scout, cheese, bread. Those are on your favorites list, right? People watching, anybody? Come on. We buy tickets to the state fair to people watch. We say it's for the food, but it's not. We just eat our cheese curds and watch people. House hunting, anybody show up to like like open houses with no intent to buy? (laughs) Okay, great. It felt like crickets this morning, so thank goodness some of you are with me. All right, I love a good crime series on TV, you know. Uh, True crime podcasts, I like those too. TV, I just love watching TV. I'm one of those people who's like, I love watching TV unapologetically. I watch too much when a pastor's like, do you know how many hours Americans spend on TV? I'm like, yes, I do. Uh, Also my Bible. I was a late adapter to this book, okay? I was 16 when I got my first Bible, and I, I read it like any other book I'd read up until that point. I started at the beginning. And when we got to day seven where, Jesus, where God rested, I was like, me too. <laughs> you know, I'm like, I don't get it. I don't get it. So I put it away for like five years, 
you know, seriously. And, and then when I was in college, I opened it back up again and I started in the middle. Someone told me to do that, start in the middle. And so I started like in the New Testament with the four gospels and the four gospels are four different accounts of Jesus's life. And I was like, oh, this is where I should have started, you know, because then, then you draw back to the Old Testament and you see how it all kind of fits together. Um, but it's fascinating, the stories, the people, what you read in here. And so I love, love my Bible. Let me ask you the question, what do you love? What do you love? It's a rhetorical question. Think about it. When's the last time you asked yourself that question and thought about the answers? What do you love? This morning, I, uh, and I don't say this lightly, and I, it doesn't happen often that God speaks to me. Um, it just felt sort of like a prompting. Um, but God put it on my heart to talk about something that we often think is the opposite of love. And it's this word, grief. Good topic for the summer. <laughs> it's grief. And the reason that I, I, I really felt this prompting from the Lord, full disclosure, is that's how you find me this morning, in a season of grief. And God says, why don't you speak to them from that place? The place that makes you feel uncomfortable, the place that you don't know very much about. What I'm learning in this season of grief is that it's not the absence of love, but rather the proof of it. I was up late the other night moving through a crime series. I told you, I love it. I stumbled upon it, um, Amazon Prime called Three Pines. I don't endorse it. I, I'm not even close to being done with it. But in the opening scene, there's a death, naturally. Okay, It was the death of a mother. And uh, the detective knows a thing or two about grief, about death. And he's sitting down with this teenage daughter. And he says this. He says, grief is love with nowhere to go. I, I mean, I came to, to Amazon Prime for pure entertainment, but I found myself pausing and going like, whoa, wait. Grief is love with nowhere to go. And maybe if I wasn't in a season of grieving myself, I, I wouldn't have even noticed it, but not tonight. Grief is love with nowhere to go. I, as I thought about it, I think it means that once you've loved something so deeply, you're now grieving it because you've lost it, but the love for it is not gone. You still don't have anywhere to put it. And so then it just starts to feel like, well, grief. So it could be a significant loss, the loss of a marriage, the loss of a parent, heaven forbid, the loss of a child. It's like you love that person so much, but they are not here to extend that love. Or maybe in the grand scheme of life, there's less significant loss, like my son, who's an avid baseball player. They lost their last game last weekend, ended their season, and, and it's just grief for him, you know? And grief doesn't discriminate. We feel it at different times in our lives and for different reasons. And when you feel a deep sense of grief, especially for the first time, no matter the circumstance, it hurts. Now, I gave you a list of things that I love. And one of the things on that list is my dog, Scout. <laughs> 
<laughs> Golden Retrievers. I mean, the best breed on the planet. If you want to argue with me about that, I'll be down front after the message. <laughs> oh, Scout, our faithful, loyal Golden Retriever. What I didn't tell you is that Scout lived his last day on earth on Thursday, June 22nd, just a few short weeks ago. And he was one and a half years old. And there's been a shift in my spirit. And it was just like, oh, it hasn't left me. This grief won't go away. And I know some of you are thinking, it's, it's just a dog. I'm like, I know. I, I don't know why this grief has stuck around like it has. When we first saw Scout online, we read his little profile. It read things like runt of the litter, loves to cuddle. I'm like, okay. You know, loves to cuddle, picked on by his litter mates. Picked on by his litter mates. I'm like, what? Mild-tempered, quite submissive. We're like, that's our dog. You know, you're like, give me the playful. And I'm like, no, give me the mush, you know. Uh, We brought him home to our 13-year-old Shih Tzu. And listen, (laughs) I had to say it, okay? My daughter says, mom, it's Shizu. She doesn't like to hear her mom swear. I say, no, not this one. This 13-year-old is a shit zoo, okay? <laughs> Personifies her breed name like no other. Scout, you know, runs into the door, you know, we first get him and she's like, <laughs> you know, he's like, <laughs> you know, he had like no shot at being independent and strong, right? When he was a puppy, I used to pick him. If he would sit at my feet, like when I'm frying something, I'd pick him up and I'd like lay his head down on my shoulder. <laughs> You know, fry some eggs. I mean, he just had no shot. He was a baby. He was my baby, you know. When he was five months old, though, we took him to get fixed. It's important. Within 30 minutes, they were running tests, calling us, saying, you know, his, his kidney numbers and his white blood cell count numbers are low. And we're like, dang it, what? You know. And so we ran a bunch of tests and no conclusions, and they're like, it's time for you to go get an ultrasound. And so we took Scout to get an ultrasound, and that's when we saw it. He had two very small, failing kidneys. Our Scout uh, was born with a disease called congenital renal failure. And so we left the vet with a seven-month-old puppy who had two failing kidneys and the life expectancy of three to five years. It's just gut-wrenching. Like, what? And it happened so fast, you know? Because actually, his already short life expectancy was cut in half. It it like happened in one weekend. You know, one of the reasons I love my Bible so much is that there's nothing you could go through in your life that someone in here hasn't. That might show you how to get through it. Now, I'm not going to tell you to turn your Bibles to this page and this is where we see this girl and the loss of her dog, you know, but, but there's loss. There's war, addiction, dying, anger, lying, deceit, stealing, and, and grief. And, and Jesus himself was not immune to that list. He was not immune to this word we call grief. One of the most grief-stricken moments in your Bibles is Jesus in a garden, a garden that's meant to, you know, spring forth life and, and flourishing. And instead, we see Jesus grief-stricken and suffering. 
I love stories where we see Jesus experiencing big human emotions. They remind me that I will too. We see, we know Jesus and his divinity, right? His resurrection, everything hinges on his resurrection, right? For us, it's why we're here. It's why we raise our hands and worship Jesus, his divine. But let's not forget that he was also human and his humanity, the way he lived, we can learn a lot about the way he lived. I, was go, I would go as far to say that one of the reasons that God sent Jesus to this earth was so that he could experience what it meant to be fully human. For him, sure, but, but for us, for us. You know, grief, <clears throat> it's unexpected, right? It shows up when we're least prepared for it. And you know, in my opinion, it overstays as well, its welcome. <laughs> but that's as if you're assuming the goal is not to feel it anymore. That when you feel grief, it's not meant to be felt. Sadness, it's meant to be, let, let, let's push it away. But Jesus shows us a different way. I'm telling you, you gotta read this book. <laughs> One evening, Jesus is sitting around with his friends, the disciples, and they're preparing to eat a meal. And it's a meal that's custom to their Jewish heritage called the Passover meal. And we refer to this meal as the Last Supper. And Jesus tells his friends that he is about to die. God's plan all along was to send Jesus to earth as the payment for our sins so we could be close to God, our creator here on earth and someday in heaven. Sins of our past, sins yet to be committed and Jesus came to restore all people, all creation back to God. But to do that, he tells his friends that he has to die. And Jesus knew it, he knew his mission from the very beginning. So he's sharing with his friends that the time has come for him to die. And after this meal, they go to that garden. And that's where I want to pick up the story. Here's what our Bibles tell us. They went to the olive grove called Gethsemane. And Jesus said, sit here while I go and pray. He took Peter, James, and John with him. And he became deeply troubled and distressed. He told them, my soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. He went on a little farther and fell to the ground. He prayed that if it were possible, the awful hour awaiting him might pass him by. Abba, Father, he cried out, everything is possible for you. Please take this cup of suffering away from me, yet I want your will to be done, not mine. Man, so many things we could talk about. So many things. I want to zero in on one word. One very small yet profound word. It's this one. Yet. He understood the yet. We see him and experience him in this grief. And he says, yet, your will. That word, yet, we see Jesus surrender 
surrender. We learn in this moment of grief from Jesus himself that grief doesn't overstay its welcome, Emily, no. Grief has the potential to awaken us to deeper reliance and communion with God. In our grief, we have the opportunity to learn how to yet, how to surrender. The most imaginable thing is about to happen to Jesus. We see the agony, the distress. We hear it in his voice, the grief in his voice. He says, I'm crushed with grief to the point of death. You know, he's not grieving. I'm about to put his dog down. He's about to put his life down. But here we see him grieve. We see him exercise his, yet his surrender, yet your will be done, not mine. I was talking to a dear friend and spiritual mentor of mine, and she was, she was talking to me about, about grief. And uh, she said this, I've been thinking about it ever since, that God doesn't cause our pain. You know, in moments of grief, we, we blame, we think he did, he does. She said he makes allowances for it. That's different. It's different. He allows for these things to happen so that we have the opportunity to do as Jesus did and exercise our yet practice surrender. I'm reading a book right now called When the Heart Waits, and spiritual director and author Sue Monk Kidd writes this about Jesus. She says, when Jesus was in pain, he didn't try to squirm out of it. Rather, he embraced the pain. He let it happen. Or as my friend says, he made allowances for it. I think what I'm learning is that grief can actually be a gift. Sounds counterintuitive, doesn't it? If the goal in this life is to be more like Christ every day, then nothing has the power to draw us closer to him than a season of grieving. And, and, and by the way, I, I know that the, the season of grief that I'm in, the reason for it, the loss of my dog, pales in comparison to the grief that you're suffering. I know that. But no matter what you're grieving, it hurts. And it's not meant to be hurried through. Instead, we must have the grace and the patience to slowly allow it to move through our bodies and our minds and our hearts because what if on the other side is a deeper reliance and a deeper communion with God. It's hard to imagine. It's hard to imagine sometimes stepping into our grief like, you're welcome here. <laughs> Have you ever been close to someone who is grieving? Close to someone who is grieving where, where, where they remained faithful to the Lord? Like maybe you yourself have not experienced much grief, but you know somebody that's going through it. I have a friend uh, like this. She's invited me into her family's grief, and I've been personally ministered to in her grief. In fact, I would say she prepared me for my own. And, and again, her grief, my grief, 
pales in comparison to hers. Uh, her daughter was born with a form of cancer where they are sort of forced to live now, scan to scan. She's only six. Can you imagine? Um, she's healthy today, but, but that could change tomorrow. And, and by all accounts, her situation is so bad, I would understand if she lost her faith. Her situation is so bad, I would understand if she was angry at God. Her situation, to me, is so bad and so unfortunate that I would think she'd turn the hearts of many away from God. Look at what he's done. But instead, I get text messages like this. Our trauma is every day. It's hard when the event isn't done, but we'll be honest our entire lives, always on guard, always thinking that life might be cut short. We have decided to be in the posture of looking up and declaring that God is good. I find it's not faith over fear. That doesn't allow for human experience. But instead, faith alongside fear. We daily have to lay down our health. We daily have to lay down our massive ongoing medical bills. We daily have to lay down the temptation to be overcome and instead put on joy. We have to stay dependent and kingdom focused. It's a huge gift in a way. We've gotten to experience God in ways, uh, in ways others never have or never will. What a privilege. Gift. Privilege. <laughs> My grief pales in comparison to hers, and yet she texted me on the morning that we were putting Scout down to say, I'm praying for you. I love you. God loves you. He doesn't waste anything. Jesus hung on that cross muttering the words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Have you ever been there? Jesus has. Jesus revealing the human experience of pain and suffering, fear alongside faith, yet I want your will, not mine. Faith. Alongside fear, that's looking up and declaring that God is good. So how do we do this? When grief hits, when sadness is not leaving your body, how do you make room for the human experience of grief and still choose the yet? Here's two things I'm learning. The first is this, don't run. We've already sang about that. You know, stand in your love. That fear doesn't stand a chance when I stand in your love. In the midst of the grieving process, we need to posture ourselves in a way that's like my friend or that's like Jesus. We stand our ground and believe that on the other side, we reach new heights of faithfulness and communion with God. The grief probably never leaves us. But we experience deeper communion with God. I'm 
reading another book. It's taken me a long time to get through this book, Secrets of the Secret Place. It's about our prayer time with God. And author Bob Sorge writes about the secret power of this holy standing, this holy standing. He says this, you stand here in the face of much opposition. Your schedule doesn't give you room for this. Your body clock complains. Work and family demands tell you that you don't have time for this. And of course, all hell wars against your stand. That's true. Satan doesn't want you to stand in confidence. No, no. But you've awakened to the beauties of holiness and won't allow anything to rob you of this privilege. There's that word again. Just to stand before God, to stand despite the warfare, to stand despite the personal failure, to stand despite the grief, to stand because of the cross, to stand because of his mighty power within, to stand because of his eternal purpose, to stand because of love, just to stand. That's holy standing right there. When we run from our grief, we learn nothing about the character of God, yet when we stand in our grief, we experience what he did on the cross in a new way. We recognize his power within us. We gain understanding to his eternal purposes and we experience just how much he loves us. Remember, grief is not the absence of love, but rather proof that love exists, that it's available to us. We posture ourselves in the yet when we stand our ground. Yet your will be done, not mine. Standing still in our grief is practicing the human experience of fear alongside the supernatural power and strength of faith. Faith that Christ had. You don't have to exchange one for the other. Do not believe the lie that if you are afraid, you have no faith. The feeling of fear is the opportunity to draw you closer to the Lord. Fear is not the absence of faith. Let's return one more time to Sue Monkid's book, When the Heart Waits, where she says it like this. Most of us Christians don't know how to wait in pain. I don't. I do not like to be in pain at least not in the contemplative, creative way that opens us up to newness and growth. We're told, turn it over to Jesus. Anybody ever tell you that? And presto, things should be okay. But inside, things usually aren't okay. So on top of everything else, we feel guilty because obviously we didn't really turn our pain over or else it wouldn't still be with us. That's a lie. Or we decide that God wasn't listening. God can't be trusted to deliver on divine promises. And then she asks this really profound question. She says, how did we ever get the idea that God would supply us with on-demand quick fixes that God is merely a rescuer and not a midwife? A rescuer saves in an instant. But the midwife knows that it's a process and doesn't leave until we have birthed new life. We don't run. We stand. We stand in your love. 
When grief feels like too much, we stand in it a little bit longer. Remember, it's, it's not going to leave us. We stand in it a little bit longer. When sadness starts to well up and the, the tears fall, just let them fall. I hate crying. I hate it. Least of all, doing it in front of people. But when the tears fall at the dinner table in front of the kids that you've been trying to protect, just let them fall and tell them why you're sad. There's a lot of power in that. Uh, King David, who penned Psalm 23 in a moment of distress, gives us a practical way to stand. He says, the Lord is my shepherd, I have all that I need. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will not be afraid, for you are close beside me. Surely your goodness and unfailing love will pursue me all the days of my life, and I will live in the house of the Lord forever. Not only does he stand in his grief and distress, and we get to read in real time him declaring and crying out to the Lord. Not only does he stand in this grief and distress, but he does the second thing I'm learning how to do, and it's hard. And that's declare the goodness of God. Declaring the goodness of God is a posture, it's a choice. It's a discipline. It's saying, yet your will be done, Lord, not mine, when you can't imagine uttering those words. Like you came in here and we sang goodness of God. And it's like, I don't want to sing. <laughs> Certain seasons of our lives declaring God's goodness feels like exercise. You don't want to do it. No one does. But we choose to do it. We lace up our tennis shoes. We know it's good for us. And we're relieved when it's over. But we learn that our bodies are actually strong. And our minds are strong. We do it even when we don't want to. We declare God's goodness as an act of worship. And worship sometimes feels like an act of obedience and surrender, two things that are really hard for us in our American culture. Obedience and surrender. I can't promise you that your circumstances will change in an instant. But declaring his goodness in the midst of whatever you're going through has the power to change your heart in an instant. My friend reminds us that declaring God's goodness is a choice we make. And when we make that choice, we inevitably have to lay down the temptation to be angry, to be resentful, to wonder why me. But he brings clarity to and purpose to our pain. He grows us in ways that he never would have or could have without the very thing you're having to lay down right now in order to be here in order to worship him. It's that refining in the fire that we read about. We are refined in our grief. My friend sees her pain as a gift and a privilege. Could you imagine what her worship is like? She says, I'm gonna look up and declare that God is good. Jesus says, Yet your will be done, not mine. Uh, you sang about the goodness of God. And I don't know about you, but 
That's a song I've listened to, worshiped in church, I mean, hundreds of times, right? And sometimes familiarity kind of stops us from remembering what we're singing about. A song becomes so familiar to us that we, we don't even know what it's, what it's saying. So let me remind you, you've already declared his goodness. All my life, you have been faithful. All my life, you have been so, so good. Can you, can you imagine being in that writing room? You know, someone was like, how about this for a chorus? All my life, you've been faithful. All my life, you've been so good. And someone was like, no, no. All my life, you've been so, so good. <laughs> With every breath that I am able, I will sing of the goodness of God. With every breath, Lord. And for some of you, you're like, that's all I got? But my offering to you is this breath in my lungs. With every breath that I am able, I will sing of the goodness of God. Maybe you gotta get in your cars today and re-listen, listen on the way home. The song is so powerful. It's so powerful. What we learn from Jesus today is that in our grief, we stand, stand in the love of Jesus where hell can't touch us. And we declare his goodness. Grief doesn't just go away. Grief may never go away, loss. It stays with us, but oh, does it have the power to bring us into greater communion and reliance on God, yes? Friends, I'm gonna pray for you. We'll be done. Lord Jesus, you are so good. We declare that today. You are so, so good. And I have been in seasons where I have had to say it out of sheer obedience. I don't feel it, but I know it's true. And so I'm gonna say it over and over and over again until my heart feels it. And for some of us, that's where we are this morning, Lord, and I pray, Jesus, I pray that they would muster the courage to just declare your goodness to stand in your presence just a little bit longer, to not push you away, but say, Lord, I know you are near, and therefore I stand in your presence, believing that you are with me. Jesus, thank you for the sacrifice of the cross. Thank you for your divine nature, for the resurrection, but thank you for taking on human flesh so that we could watch the way that you walk. Be with us, Jesus, today. Thank you for this time, I pray. Amen. Amen, my friends. Thanks for having me.